Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature poet and essayist Kathy Park Hong from Portland Arts and Lectures in January 2022. Hong became nationally famous in the spring of 2020 for her essay collection, Minor Feelings, An Asian American Reckoning, a book so searing and powerful, it landed her on the cover of Time Magazine's 2021 issue featuring the 100 most influential people in the world. This collection of seven essays is a deeply personal account of Hong becoming an artist. It is also an account of her and her family's experience as Korean Americans in this country. But she has emphasized that this is a book about America not only about being Asian American. It is also a book infused with her sensibility as a poet, as someone who is fascinated with the endless mutability and power of language. Hong has published three acclaimed collections of poetry, and many listeners who know and have read Minor Feelings might be surprised to learn she primarily identifies as a poet, not as an essayist. The theme of her talk is community and belonging, and she threads a narrative through pop culture, religion, autobiography, and 20th century history in order to try to understand the rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans during the pandemic and the broader discrimination so many Americans experience in their daily lives. That she does this with anger, humor, and tenderness speaks to her remarkable powers as a writer and a speaker. Here's Hong. Hello, Portland. <laughs> Thank you so much, and thank you for braving Omicron and the cold weather to be here. So my talk is on community and belonging. Um, I'll read also a little bit from Minor Feelings and include a couple outtakes from it as well. Like the famous Led Zeppelin song, my grandmother once told me there was a stairway to heaven. Every time I didn't go to church, there was a step missing. I imagined a staircase with huge gaps when I didn't go to church, where a misaimed leap would have me falling, hurtling towards the abyss for an eternity. Needless to say, that story incentivized me to go to church every week. My parents, grandmother and I, used to go to a Korean church in K-Town, Los Angeles. It was no ordinary church. My Sunday school teacher, I thought, lingered a bit too long on how rusty and thick the nail was when it skewered Christ's delicate pale hands. There was a lot of time spent on how hot the fire was in hell. I started going to that church from age five on. My father was, at first, a devoted congregant. In fact, he went to three different churches every Sunday. But it wasn't exactly because he was a devout man. At that time, my father was a life insurance salesman and he thought church was a great setting to talk about how if you are going to live forever in paradise, you might as well make sure your loved ones were well taken care of on earth. So here were a few life insurance policies to consider. My father was never that religious, neither was my mother. When he stopped going, it was I who brought up the story about Stairway to Heaven as a stern warning to him. 
Well, my parents were troublingly apathetic about God. I found a fellow Godmate in my grandmother. Every morning at dawn, she knelt in the corner of the living room and prayed and sobbed for one hour. Sometimes I used to come in and wipe the tears from her face and tell her to stop crying. Morning prayer for her, I realize, was her therapy, to unburden all that weight on her, though I thought it was a bit much when she would sob and beg to God that I get decent PSAT scores. <laughs> By age nine, I was starting to find church a little hard to bear. The kids were not that nice. The minister screamed a lot at the podium. I recalled once going to a white Episcopalian church with a white friend, and I was shocked by how calm it was. No one yelled about hell. Everyone made pictures of Bible scenes out of felt cut out. Sunday school was basically art class with a little bit of Jesus thrown in. My last memory of that Korean church was church camp. At nine, it was my first time away from my parents. I didn't want to go, actually, because the kids were gossiping about how everyone was speaking in tongues the last time they went. My deepest fear was God taking control of my tongue and waggling it around. It was my tongue, and I wanted full control over my own tongue. In the evening, we gathered together in the main cabin. We sat in fold-out chairs. The Sunday school teacher was on the stage. She sang Bible songs on her guitar, and we all sang along. Then she started praying, first quietly, then she became louder, and started begging God for our salvation. She demanded that we beg for our salvation too. As if on cue, the kids all around me began collapsing from their fold-out chairs like they were having a stroke. They were all crying, begging for forgiveness. This scared the shit out of me. Not only because they were having a fit, but because I wasn't having a fit. I was completely dry-eyed. I wasn't moved at all. I was like the only sober person around everyone else high on acid. I tried to imagine tragedies like my parents dying to simulate tears. I fake cried. Teachers went around embracing each kid one by one, whispering, we had God in our throats, in our hearts, and that we were saved. When one teacher hugged me, I hammed up my sobs. Meanwhile, I felt like an imposter. Last year, I asked my mother if that church still existed. She said it did, and for the first time, I googled it, and there it was, Agape Gyoe, on Western. I clicked onto the poorly designed website and found out for the first time that the church I grew up in was a Pentecostal church. I was basically raised Pentecostal, and I didn't even know it. I just used to call it the crazy Christian church, but I had no idea it was Pentecostal crazy. I was pissed at my mom. I asked her why we joined a Pentecostal church when it was basically like joining a cult. She said she didn't know and laughed, saying, no wonder that church was so crazy. <laughs> then she shrugged it off, as if accidentally joining a Pentecostal church was a simple mistake, <laughs> like mixing colors and whites in the washer and all the clothes turning out pink. My most formative years was spent in entirely Korean communities in LA. That church was that community and was probably why for a while I became very allergic to the idea of community. It shaped me to be resistant to everything that it stood for.
I never wanted to have anything to do with organized religion, and it made me deeply wary of any kind of groupthink. It might have also made me a little bit wary of Asian-affiliated groups in college. I was like Groucho Marx. They were eager to have me join, and I didn't want to belong in any club that accepted me. But I think I was afraid that they would thrust a Jesus pamphlet into my hands. In retrospect, I realized that church really helped shape me as a writer. I didn't grow up in a house of books or bedtime stories, so it was my first exposure to narrative, to fantasy, to imagining invented worlds. Maybe the stories of Babel or speaking in tongues also seeded interest in my obsession with mixing up languages as a poet. That night at the church camp is seared into my memories because I panicked and I thought I was a godless shell of a human being. But it was also my first memory of doubt and self-awareness that what I felt was different from others and that difference in thinking made me, me. The final nail on the coffin to my Christianity was when I turned 11 and listened to Depeche Mode for the first time. <laughs> I became friends with another Korean American girl from Flushing who had recently moved to LA. I was 11 and she was 13 going on 14. She wore silver hoop earrings and read V.C. Andrew paperbacks and bragged about making out with 24-year-old men. She was a cousin of my first bad Asian friend, and she was bad too. It ran in the family. She played me blasphemous rumors by Depeche Mode where the lyrics went, I don't want to start any blasphemous rumors, but I think God's got a sixth sense of humor, and when I die, I expect to find him laughing. When I first heard those lyrics, I thought lightning was gonna strike her boombox down. When it didn't, I became a Depeche Mode fan. From childhood until college, I didn't really have books to help me articulate my sense of alienation. I felt doubt that the life I lived was terribly unjust, but because I didn't know how it was unjust, my perspective on society could just be categorized as generic teenage angst. I was the classic kid who didn't belong, not just among white kids, but among the Korean Christian kids too. But really, I had no interest in belonging to any racial category. Rather than race, I preferred to define my identity by the music I listened to. I loved the Smiths, for instance, a band that oddly had a devout following among SoCal immigrant kids. Latinx and Asian kids were especially obsessed with Morrissey. This closeted queer misanthrope from Manchester brought us together like grief, especially the rockabilly Latinx kids, some of whom, like myself, hated the cruel California sun because it never aligned with their moods, who called Morrissey Santo Maz because he channeled all the minor feelings by the way he sang in Swanning Contralto. I am the sun and the heir of a shyness that is criminally vulgar. I am the sun and the air of nothing in particular. Swinging a bouquet of gladiolas like a sword on stage, he avenged for all our lost childhoods. In his essay, The Wrong Daddy, about Morrissey, the writer Jeremy Atherton Lynn wrote, I responded to his historicized English landscape because I saw myself in it, a romantically anemic, damp, pitiable, somehow justified version of myself. I wanted to be, as the press called Morrissey, pale and interesting. I felt similarly. By listening to Morrissey, I felt justified in my melancholy, my me-against-them attitude, my shyness that was criminally vulgar. 
What really defines an anthem, whether it's a star-spangled banner or a moody rock song, is that it makes you feel justified for being who you are. It took many years for me, by the way, to feel justified for being Asian. Asian identity is more associated with South Asians in the UK than in the US. And in 1991, Morrissey sang a song called Asian Rut, a somewhat sympathetic song about an Asian boy being beaten up by white kids, who he, as a bystander, doesn't do anything about and just walks away looking for someplace more civilized. In yet another song called Bengali in Platforms, he sang another song about a Bengali boy who wants to be embraced by Anglo culture, to which the protagonist pityingly responds, that life is hard enough when you belong here. In the 90s, Morrissey already had a strange, ambivalent relationship to Asians, and even his affection for his Mexican fans were oddly patronizing. While he expressed some acknowledgement that the same bullies who bullied him also bullied immigrants, he was also aloof to their suffering. Years later, starting in the uh, mid-aughts, Morrissey's ambiguous tolerance for his immigrant fans hardened to contempt. He became a poster boy for Brexit. He denounced Berlin as, quote, the rape capital because of its open door policy, and he called Chinese people, quote, subspecies. Morrissey never came out as queer. Instead, he came out as a full-on xenophobe. And at the time, while I was no longer an Arden Smith's fan, my teenage heart was forever cleaved. The singer who didn't belong anywhere now made his claim on England, and it was the children of immigrants who didn't belong anywhere in his country. In my book, Minor Feelings, I wrote about a scene when I was 13 and my sister was nine, and how we were at a mall in LA, which I'll read a little bit here. We were leaving the mall. A white couple opened the glass doors to enter as we were leaving. I assumed the man was opening the door for us, so we scurried out as he reluctantly held the door wide. Before the door shut behind him, he bellowed, I don't open doors for chinks. My sister burst into tears. She couldn't understand why he was so mean. That's never happened to me before, she cried. I wanted to run back into the mall and kill him. I had failed to protect my younger sister, and I was helpless in my murderous rage against a grown man so hateful he was incapable of recognizing us as children. There was another scene afterwards that I ended up editing out of minor feelings. It was a conversation that I had with my father afterwards. I took it out because I thought the scene was already dramatic enough. And if I were to add the conversation with my father, then it would have been too much, too melodramatic. But I'll read my outtake here. That same day, later that night, I told my father about the racist incident. I could tell he was enraged. When I told him the story, he grew progressively angrier. But, as I thought, instead of directing that rage at that white man, he said, why didn't you let them go first? I was shocked that that was how he reacted. I said, what does that matter? And then he said more urgently, more sternly, you should have let them go first. Why didn't you let them go first? And then I got upset and said, he was the rude one. He was the one who was racist. What does it matter if, we, if I let them go first? And then my father interrupted me and he said, you must always let them go first, always, because you can't trust them. You don't know what they will say.
Behind this very dispiriting advice, I felt the weight of experience in his words, wherein which my father, countless times, was also humiliated by white people. It was unspoken, but red hot in his anger. From that conversation and other experiences I had from childhood, I learned early on that the American social contract did not extend to the Asian American, that no one needed to open doors for us or say thank you or help us if someone knocked us over. No one needed to invite someone if we were over 65 and overburdened with bags to sit down next to them on the subway or get up so they could sit down. No one needed to apologize if they made an insensitive comment. We had to ingratiate ourselves, say thank you when there was nothing to thank, be grateful when there was nothing to be grateful for, get up for them, step aside, let the white man and woman in first. And if we felt that our personhood was degraded, we had to let it go, move on. That was our conditional experience. The etymology of belong is, quote, to go along with or be property of. In every coming-of-age immigrant novel I read, the theme was always about wanting to belong. But belong to what? To whom? Which America do I want to belong? My parents' idea of belonging was purely pragmatic. It was attached to material belongings, starting a business, owning a home. Tacit in that social contract of belonging was that they got along, that they behaved, and in exchange they were promised the comfort of blending into the right side of the segregated nation. It didn't mean that they earned any of the entitlements of whites, but they were at least left alone to earn their keep, which is a far greater privilege than what, say, black people had. But tolerance for Asians, like that of other minorities, only stretches so far. As a scholar, Wendy Brown said, dislike, disapproval, and regulation lurk at the heart of tolerance Usually, I adjust my behavior according to the bandwidth of tolerance I sense in a room. Tolerance is like a thin rubber band. At some point, for reasons that have nothing to do with you, their tolerance of you will stretch to the point that it breaks. Unlike the parent, the child of the Asian immigrant may have more of an existential idea of what belonging is because a child is not born white, but born of inferior race. The parents might not understand this because they grew up a nation where they were the dominant race. They scoff at the child's melancholy, her confusion. A gulf grows between the parent and child. While I was mad at my parents for most of my adolescence, I now have a much better understanding of what they went through now. By crossing the Pacific, they crossed Lethe, the river of forgetting. Upon arrival in America, they were granted amnesty from the past with the promise that their children will be inoculated from suffering. But it was only an empty promise to which they clung, deaf to their children's claim that they were unhappy. What was happiness anyway? Happiness was a Western construct that eluded them, the way high notes heard by dogs eluded humans. Then one day, the children accused them, who sacrificed their lives to protect them, that not only did they suffer, but their mother and father were the cause of their suffering. The parents are, of course, upset. Not only that, they feel betrayed. Betrayed by their children, betrayed by their new country. But why should they be surprised? If their country was a formerly colonized country, they should know that the West has a habit of carving lines between blood relations. My mother has asked me this often. Why do you make yourself suffer? 
She said that first when I told her I wanted to be a poet. But she also means that I have a tendency to dwell. I take the hard route. I refuse to liquidate the past for the future. Instead, instead I fixate on the past. I fixate on struggle. To suffer, according to the scholar Sarah Ahmed, means, quote, to feel yourself in disagreement with what has been judged as good. The problem with the coming of age story of belonging is its compulsory happy ending. It ends when the child no longer feels intolerable stress, but comfort in being accepted for who she is. But is that it? Is human consciousness really nothing more than found luggage? I also found the ending where the protagonist finds belonging to always be premature. She has found her community. She has found belonging. Comfort is the stopping point. I firmly believe that belonging is necessary, but on the way to something else. And here I turn to Sarah Ahmed again, who offers another ending where the alien, quote unquote, sees through her own alienation, which opens her to a revolutionary consciousness. She steps back from her own alienation and understands the social order in which she has been made an alien, recognizing that it is not she who is unable to inhabit the world, but the world that has made itself uninhabitable. I want to skip ahead now and content warning, there's some, there's violence. I want to now skip ahead to 2021, to a hate crime that happened in Midtown Manhattan. On March 29, a 65-year-old Filipino woman was walking down 43rd Street, a block well-traveled by pedestrians, when a 38-year-old black homeless man approached her out of nowhere and kicked her in the stomach and she collapsed. The man subsequently stomped on the woman's head once, twice, and then a third time while yelling at her to go back to her country. The surveillance video recording the incident was from inside a luxury con condo where three men, two of them security guards, watched from inside the luxury apartment building. He walked away, and as the critically wounded woman struggled to rise, a security guard, watching from the lobby, closed the front door so they wouldn't be bothered. Watching the footage of assault against Asians, most of whom were elderly and women, in 2020 and 2021, and it's still happening today, what has vexed me was not just, is actually not just the crime itself, but how rarely anyone came to the Asian victim's aid. Like that bystander in Morrissey's song, they do nothing, they walk away, or they look down. The technology that documents these crimes indicate as much. Oftentimes it's not a sympathetic witness recording the incident on their iPhone, but the grainy substandard resolution that typifies the poor quality of surveillance videos. The victim is no more than a blurry figure rather than a sharply defined individual, and she is always alone before the assault, during the assault, and after the assaulter has left the scene of the crime. Social contract is an agreed upon social arrangement between state and civilian, where the civilian cede certain freedoms with the understanding that they will be protected by the state, as well as the unspoken code of behavior between citizens in order to maintain a working society. The absence of bystanders shouting for help or rushing to assist the victim proved in my mind yet again how the Asian is so often left out of this country's social contract. 
from that conversation with my father and the macro and microaggressions I faced as a child, I grew up internalizing the reality that the Asian is not part of the American social contract, and I am frequently reminded of that as one example during election years when poll after poll of racial breakdowns always categorize Asian Americans as other. When asked why Asians are not included as their own group in the racial breakdown, statisticians always claim that there are not enough of us, to which I would ask, when will there be enough of us? So we begin to count. When we are at 12%, 15%, when will, be, will we be counted so that the polls will see us as part of this country? The Asian nail salon technician is so capable, she is invisible. The Asian delivery man is so capable he is invisible. Then suddenly, by no fault of their own, they are no longer invisible. Society's tolerance for them breaks, and because the circumstances outside their control, they become an object of contempt. The psychoanalyst Sylvan Tompkins wrote the following about contempt, which I also wrote about in Minor Feelings. Contempt will be used sparingly in a democratic society lest it undermines solidarity, whereas it will be used frequently and with approbation in a hierarchically organized society in order to maintain distance between individuals, classes, and nations. Trump used contempt as a weapon, and he might come back in power because contempt still infects the body politic in the US. Contempt is what te tech companies like Facebook and Twitter breed because contempt is arousing, addictive, and adrenaline-fueled. It sharpens the murky mass of our resentment to a point, giving our aimless, pent-up animus meaning. And by meaning, I mean an enemy within our proximity who, upon which we could vent our frustration. I doubt contempt was a motivation for the security guard to close the door. It's hard to say why he closed the door. Based on the grainy footage, he didn't seem panicked or scared. He closed the door after the assaulter left. He closed the door slowly and deliberately at the moment when she was struggling to get up and look at him for help. I had a discussion with a Korean American friend who said that the public was scapegoating the guards. It didn't matter that she was Asian, she said. Those security guards were not looking out for themselves. They were afraid of being fired. Their concern, she said, was for the residents in the building. They were only doing what they were paid to do, which is precisely the point. Yes, they as individuals shouldn't be scapegoated because what we should think about is what they are paid to do, which is to protect capital over the lives of others. Under late capitalism, our social contract has evolved so that our freedoms are given up, not for our own protection, but the protection of property and citizens who have the means to own property. Like police officers in ICE border, border Patrol, these guards were hired to manage the borders between the desirables and the undesirables between those who belong inside and those who belong outside. If they assisted the woman and helped her inside, they knew they would endanger, or at the very least inconvenience, the lives of residents inside the building. But this is where I disagreed with my friend. It mattered very much that she was Asian, or that at least that she wasn't white. If she were white, those guards would have immediately rushed to her aid, would have immediately led her inside and called 911. Race determines proximity to capital, and her whiteness would entitle her protection and access inside the luxury condo. What matters less to me isn't that the assaulters are black or Latinx or Middle Eastern. And by the way, the majority of the attackers have been white, 70%. But that it's the vulnerable attacking the vulnerable, the poor against the poor. It matters less that Brandon Elliott is black or the security guards might be white or brown. 
their actions are symptomatic of a society ruled by contempt or division, which, to repeat Tompkins, is used frequently in a hierarchically organized society in order to maintain distance between individuals, classes, and nations. The U.S. Had always, have always held contempt for the black person. With other minorities, that contempt could be more temperamental. Today, it's anyone who looks East Asian. Tomorrow, it could be some other vulnerable group. The borders between the US and non-white countries, between good and bad neighborhood, between private and public, are enforced by segregation and immigration laws, policing incarceration, and by manipulating the emotional temperature of the body politics or a tolerance for difference can turn to contempt on a dime. And it's not just Trump who foments this contempt, but American culture and entertainment as well. Hollywood for the last 100 years has circulated and even spawned many of the hurtful stereotypes that afflict Asian Americans. We are nameless enemies in jungles that American soldiers can shoot down without thought, punching bags for comedians. We are whores, submissive wives, geishas, emasculated nerds, angry, gibbering store owners who get what's coming to them. It never ceases to amaze me how in Vietnam War movies, that though Americans are the ones who are invading Vietnam, they're always seen as under attack. They are seen as victims. Anna Mae Wong, the Chinese-American starlet who graced Hollywood's silver screen in the early 1930s and who was killed off in every film she was in, said, quote, when I die, the epitaph should say, I died a thousand deaths. Right now in the US, there is a widespread wet reckoning among progressives that America, that city on the hill is, as Fred Moten and Stefano Harney writes, a settler's fort. In these classic Westerns, the fort is built out of self-defense to keep out surrounding savage native invaders. When in fact, in reality, it's the inverse. The settler is a savage invader, and it's the Native Americans outside the fort who are being invaded upon. Modern iterations of the fort are the luxury condo that closed its doors on the Filipino woman, the gated suburban home with a security alarm, the Hollywood studio, or the militarized prison tower that polices and surveils the dispossessed. Moulton and Harney ask that we quote unquote, surround democracy's false image in order to unsettle it. They urge that we be the surround. Since writing Minor Feelings, I've been thinking a lot about community. If in my youth I refused to belong in a country that didn't want me in the first place, I now think about how we, as writers or filmmakers and artists, need to reimagine belonging and reimagine the US. This reckoning has been happening everywhere, which is why we're also getting such an intense pushback from white conservatives and why books like 1619 or Mouse are getting banned all over the country because they want to keep their fort and they don't want to hear from the surround. I've also been thinking about how Asian American identity could be recasted since this definition is a question I get all the time. What is it? What is its use? Does it box us in? A racial identity is not a box to check off, but to quote Atari, quote, a plurality of disparate groups coming together in a kind of unified disunity, a pragmatic solidarity without solidity. In other words, Asian American identity should be conceived of as a loosely assembled coalition, the way Asian American activists first conceived of it in 1968, which is an ideal formed out of resistance against that white imperialist capitalist fort 
a broad intersectional alliance that understands that it's part of the surround. And that's striving to take a ladder and climbing into that fort will only accelerate the destruction of this world. In thinking about belonging as a writer, let me read a short passage from Minor Feelings on page 109, just two paragraphs, which I'll end with. In his book, White Flights, the writer Jess Rowe says, quote, America's great and possibly catastrophic failure is its failure to imagine what it means to live together. Rowe contextualizes this insight by reflecting on white post-war post novelists who raised their settings of, quote, inconveniently different faces so that their white characters could achieve their own imaginative selfhood without complication. In thinking about my own Asian identity, I don't think I can seal off my imagined world so it's only people of my likeness, because it would follow rather than break from the segregated imagination. But having said that, how can I write about us living together when there isn't too much precedent for it? Can I write about it without resorting to some facile vision of multicultural oneness or the sterilizing language of virtue signaling? Can I write honestly, not only about how much I've been hurt, but how I've hurt others? As writers, we have to desegregate the literary imagination. We have to imagine what it's like to live together, even with all its ugly conflicts. So that offers a blueprint for our future. And for me, it took a long time to understand what it means to write honestly, which is to understand, to quote Faulkner, that the past isn't that. The past isn't dead. It's not even in the past. And sometimes to write about the past may mean betraying family secrets, but sometimes that betrayal is necessary to show how the past still lives in the present. To write about identity is relational. It's about community. It's about finding belonging within the surround. Greg Bordowitz also said the most radical kind of art is art that brings together groups who wouldn't normally be in the room together. Utopia is a future projection until society outgrows its vision, its plan expiring into the past without ever being lived in the present. But I think utopia can exist in the present, but only as a glancing moment conjured by the kind of art or book that brings together people who have been forced apart by racial capitalism, a reminder if only for the briefest moment, of what another kind of society could be, giving us the much-needed fuel to electrify the surround, to keep the struggle alive, to keep the ongoing project of belonging going, because I will not settle into belonging until we all belong. Thank you. Thank you very much for that talk. That was amazing and really, really powerful. You talked a lot about music uh, in, yeah. in your talk. What are you listening to and do you have a current anthem? Oh my God. That is a really good question. I've been listening to, um, I've been actually listening to a lot of, going back to a lot of 70s mu music from the 70s, like Love and Nico and Velvet Underground. But usually I don't like to listen to music when I'm writing. Um, I've been listening to a lot of classical music. Uh, I love Japanese breakfast. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have that same obsession with music the way mm. I used to uh, when I was younger. Um, there's a great quote in the book, um, and you talked about history and amnesia a little bit, sort of in a way in America. And it says, to live an ethical life is to be held accountable to history. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that quote? You know, it's like what is happening in this country now, right, with the school curriculum um, that I talked about in my lecture, right, where 
we need to look at American his history honestly and be accountable. You know, Americans, white Americans, need to be accountable for the history of enslavement and genocide and so forth. And, uh, you know, there are many Americans who refuse to do that, you know, who refuse to uh, acknowledge it at all. And they still like to pretend that, you know, we're in the mid-century and um, racism was solved after the civil rights movement, which is the kind of history that I learned. And I think that in order to really repair, uh, you know, past injustices and present injustices, we have to really have a hard look at what we did in the past. And it's, of course, it's not just white Americans. I also, in my book, talk about, uh, you know, Korea and how uh, Korea was the second largest, um, had the second largest um, army go to Vietnam and they committed all kinds of war crimes. And, uh, you know, a, a country that was invaded upon and where there was a lot of uh, violence done to it, perpetuated and circulated that violence and so forth. And it's, you know, Koreans don't really acknowledge that either. It's like we have to, we have to not acknowledge, we also have to talk about not only how we've been hurt, but how we've also hurt others. Hmm. Yeah. There's a question at home and there's a question um, here in the, from the audience, but they're similar at all. This one just says, my son was lucky enough to be in the library at McDaniel High School today. He said it was amazing, underlined three mm. times. I was so grateful he could be there to learn from you. My question, how had mothering informed your writing and vice versa? And a similar question Susan asks is, I read that having your daughter changed your writing focus. Would you talk more about that? I feel like Susan answered that question <laughs> for, that, for, that, uh, for that woman. I mean... Uh, it was absolutely transformative being, uh, uh, becoming a mother uh, and um, in terms of my writing. Um, you know, I had this realization when I was pregnant that uh, I always saw myself as kind of a misfit or an outlier, even as a poet. Poets are already kind of misfits, right, In um, because you can't make any money as a poet, and oh, everyone's always wondering why you're a poet when because you can't make any money as a poet. But, uh, you know, and not only was I, not so not only was I mar uh, marginalized as a poet, but I was also marginalized, I, I was also really interested in being an experimental poet, so it's like my audience was this small. Um, and, you know, so, but that was the way I treated um, poetry and treated writing. Like I just wanted to always be outside the status quo, always be, always challenge authority and so forth. And then when I realized when I be, when I was pregnant, I realized, oh my God, I'm I have to be a role model to my daughter. I'm going to be an authority figure. I have to, uh, you know, I have to be. A you know, I have to kind of, she's going to be modeling her behavior based on what I do. And I think that really changed my perspective on writing, you know, where I thought that I had this responsibility, um, you know, where I saw myself more as a person who, a writer as a role model and someone who really wanted to really try to change the world through my writing. And while that seems almost an impossible task as a writer, you at least have to try. And when I realized that I was having a daughter, I didn't want her to have the same kind of childhood that I had. I wanted her to feel comfortable in her skin in the way that I wasn't comfortable in my skin. And so that compelled me to write Minor Feelings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, we've come to the end of the evening pretty oh, much, I'm God. afraid. And um, But we mm -hmm. like to end on this question. What advice do you have for young writers 
who, you know, are beginning that journey into to making art, to making writing, making poems, essays, whatever they choose. Let me think about this. Um, the advice I would give them is to be stubborn, to be absolutely stubborn and to keep writing despite any obstacle, to read as much as you can, read widely, um, to be persistent, to keep an open mind, and um, to find a, also a community of friends who are writers who you feel comfortable sharing your work. Because I think that's also really important to find um, re readers who will be sympathetic to your writing and to find mentors who will be sympathetic to your writing. Um, and just to just keep at it. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again for coming out all this way and spending you know the next three days here with us or the you know three days with us and thank you all for coming in the middle of a crazy time it's a joy and delight to be on stage in this room with you i look forward to seeing the room fill up gradually um, as things get better so thanks for being the the brave uh, ones and the first ones we are honored by your presence um, and we're honored by your presence as well kathy thank you for coming that was Kathy Park Hong from Portland Arts and Lectures in January 2022. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcasts with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to the Literary Arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.